0: Listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me as always is my co-host,
1: the one and only, Miguel. Miguel.
0: Us two DMs talk about DM in past games, and when we then we talk about the RPGs, what we doing. And learned. then we
1: slide into your DMs.
0: Oh, man. Don't. Slide into my DMs unless you're playing baseball with my dungeon master. That's, uh, that was a catchphrase on Comedy Bang Bang, I think it was, now that I think of it. Anyway, uh, man, it is the 4th of May. Oh, man. I feel like we did, I feel like last year we did an episode on this day and you, refuted, because we specifically talked about how May the 4th (laughs) was a dumb day. I did my rant. (laughs) Yeah, we we specifically talked about how it was a bad day to have the Star Wars Day because there's a better day right nearby. Yeah.
1: That's right. To reiterate, A New Hope was released in May. I think it was May 17th. I might be wrong, but it was released later in May. And all I can think is, why not celebrate Star Wars Day when a st- the first Star Wars movie was actually released. Why not?
0: You could or like do, George like,
1: Lucas's birthday.
0: You could just do two weeks of Star Wars week. You could do May the 4th all the way to May 17th. Um, you know, it's, it's almost there, pretty clean there.
1: There's enough uh, movies and similar properties that you could watch one a day for like two weeks.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's watch watch
1: all nine main series movies. And then you could watch Solo and Rogue One. That brings us to 11. And then both the Ewok adventure movies. Now we're up to 13. And then uh, the animated Clone Wars movie. Done.
0: What about The Mandolin?
1: The Mandolin? <laughs> I mean, could, well, the, you could do a whole month. Why not? Do a whole month. Watch... Uh, a Star Wars I mean, thing. You also every said night. George
0: Lucas's birthday, when's that?
1: That I don't know offhand. Okay, well.
0: Why would you? Um Yeah, so that's interesting. Apparently, we did an episode exactly 1 year ago to the day, if if I'm correct. Um who knows what episode that was. I think it was a very early one. I think Well, anyways, now I'm really getting off topic. Uh So it's it's May the 4th here. Um, I think that means that Yahoo Answers has just been shut down. Uh, It's 2021. I don't know if I said that. Uh, It's it's episode.
1: Wait, Yahoo Answers shut down. 59.
0: Oh, man, so this has been a big thing on the podcast My Brother, My Brother and Me since they harvest a good portion of their content from answering Yahoo Answers questions. Um, They rate as one of the hosts, Griffin McElroy, had a new child brought into the world. Um, One of his primary sources of revenue announced that it was shutting down Uh, Yahoo Answers. And, and, And the bizarre thing that they did is I think that it's been like, since 420 you have only been able to read yahoo answers it has become a read only site you can't answer the questions and i think as of may 4th um it is shut down and what's really bizarre is that these are both days of sort of like ominous significance to the McElroy brothers uh they had a disastrous star wars themed live show on may the 4th and then also they've had a whole running thing around 420 and so um for yahoo answers to specifically shut down on days that are auspicious to them seems almost uh targeted
1: (laughs) wow i was unaware of their disastrous star wars themed live show
0: yeah they, they don't talk about it much they just you know they mention it by saying like yeah and then for some reason when we do a whole live show and only talk about star wars people don't like it <laughs> um which i assume just says more about their audience and the fact that there's probably a decent number of people who don't watch star wars uh, that listen to that show um so that's that's a whole thing yahoo answers being shut down uh, but, Tom,
1: how, how am I going to know if I'm pregandonant?
0: Or if you can burn a Luigi board. Uh, how is
1: Babby formed?
0: Not I, I mean, everybody's been... I'm surprised you weren't aware. Everybody's been posting the classics uh, for a while now. Um, but, uh, you know, I just love, can you burn a Luigi board? Because <laughs> yeah. the question... You know what they're trying to ask is, like, if they will be cursed... If they burn their Ouija board, but they're asking right. if they physically can do it. <laughs> um, yeah, man, do you,
1: is a Wega board.
0: Yeah, uh, a wedgie board. There's also
1: Pregnert.
0: There, there's also uh, RPG-related news in the podcast sphere related to the McElroys because they've just. As I showed you, they put up their trailer for the new season of the Adventure Zone, um, which is a D and D playing podcast. And uh, for this new season, called it's like Ether, one of the big ones, it's called. Uh, yeah, I would definitely say it's it's one of the, like it's up there with Critical Role for sure. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, they they've announced that this one is going to be called Ether Sea and promises a world where civilization has been driven underwater by magical calamity. Um, But what's interesting to me is that they announced that the first three weeks of the season would be just uh, three episodes of them doing world building, uh, collaboratively using the world-building game The Quiet Year. Now, we had previously talked about the game Microscope on the podcast very, very early on. I think it might have been, like, our first episode or something. Um, it might have been.
1: Have you played it yet?
0: I haven't played it. I've looked at it. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, ne- I never actually uh, got it started. Um, I, you know, I never started up. Although back then I was I think I think back when we started the podcast I was more reticent to start new role playing game projects and I'm sort of getting better at uh you know managing coordinating coordinating all that.
1: Um I mean we talked about it last time. Now it seems like the issue for you isn't that you don't want to start new RPGs, it's that you want to start too many RPGs.
0: The thing is that's always been the issue. It's just that uh in the past my only solution has been to sort of discipline myself such that you know as i've talked about like i would have to discipline myself to stick to just one campaign for a long period of time for that good good payoff uh that i would build to and like really be patient with and that was totally worth it but like you know it also i think that the the good news is that by doing that exercise and applying that discipline i have learned enough about the process of running a game that i am now able to like better achieve that um while also sort of trying other things at the same time i've learned to multitask a little better perhaps in addition to improving my craft but um yeah uh like, because like, cause we've talked about, um, I used to have, or, or I still have a rule of like, I don't work on an act of one of my campaigns directly until I've finished the act that I'm currently on. So that, that still applies. Like, I still haven't worked on, uh, the next act of Coyote's Aegis, which is the, the MPOC campaign that I'm running right now. Um, But, yeah, anyways, uh, and then we were just talking about how, with um, the Adventure Zone talking about using the Quiet Year, uh, that got us talking about world building systems in general, which I had looked up, and there's a a page online of uh, just like a collected list of world building RPGs and whatnot that are out there and uh yeah now uh today i'm actually supposed to be trying out one of them a very simple one called a thousand years under the sun which has kind of a neat little doodle based mechanic um which i'm really looking forward to because me and my brother spent a lot of time doing doodles in the sort of ms paint like function of roll (laughs) 20
1: my brother that one looks really fun
0: yeah I'm, i'm looking forward to it um Awesome. I
1: love that, uh, like the, maybe these things aren't, uh, let me just completely rephrase what I was about to say. Actually, I stop myself before I even re- really begin. Um, I've been playing traditional form role-playing games like D&D and Rifts for a long time since I was in like grade six. So long, long time. But more recently... Uh, it wasn't until recently that I discovered these other forms of RPGs. I was going to say they're new to me, but something like Fiasco, like that's not actually that new to me well, at this and, point. And it's it's, it's just it's just newer.
0: <laughs> it's funny because beyond Fiasco, I think the biggest example for me with my experience of like um, alternate systems. Uh, certainly like once I was deeply into role-playing games apart from fiasco the big one that sticks out to me is uh in a wicked age which you literally introduced me to
1: yeah that's that was the other one I was going to mention is so they are these are newer to me than traditional rpgs but uh, to say that things like fiasco and in a wicked age are new to me is inaccurate because I've known about them for years and years at this point.
0: Am I new but... to you, McGill? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, Tom, you are not new to me. And, uh, that's, that's the correction I had to make to what I was about to say. But all of that to say, uh, I love that in more recent years, I am discovering these different forms of RPGs where, It's not quite the same as the traditional pen and paper. You know, you got your character sheet and the DM leads you through a story and calls for checks and rolls and things like that. Uh, I like that there are all these different role playing games. The ones that you pick up and play and don't necessarily need a DM. Things like Fiasco or In a Wicked Age. And now we're uncovering these rpgs that are based around world building things like microscope the quiet year under a thousand year sun that stuff is all really neat to me it's like it's like i've turned a corner in the rpg library and suddenly come upon this shelf where it's like you know miscellaneous is the headline it's not sci-fi or fantasy or anything like that it's just like miscellaneous we're gonna do it all differently and that stuff is really cool it makes me want to makes me want to uncover more, see what else is out there, what other strange forms the role playing game can take.
0: There's um actually on that note, uh are you familiar with Everyone is John?
1: No, no
0: I'm not. So this is one that always jumps out at me when I think of uh, like alternate role-playing games. Um, I'll just read you the nice boilerplate we got here. Everyone is John is a fast and fun competitive RPG where each player assumes the identity of a voice inside the head of John, a man with no real identity of his own. John's actions, skills, knowledge, and goals change constantly as the voices in his head vie for control of him by using their own <laughs> finite willpower.
1: That is... Fascinating. That reminds me of a Mister Show sketch. Did you watch Mister Show? Did you yeah, ever see that?
0: Uh, it's Scott Ackerman of Comedy Bang Bang. Uh, he uh, the, he's one of the. That was one of his big things. Is where it all began.
1: Yeah. the The sketch I'm thinking of. I'm trying to remember what it's called. But the sketch is that uh, this couple are on a subway. And all the other people in the subway car with them are like heckling the dude to react to his wife in different ways. So there's like an old lady who's like, you shouldn't put up with that. You should hit her. And then the reveal at the end is that all the other people on the subway car are figments of his imagination. And a psychologist comes out and goes like, it's a well-known psychological fact that everyone has within them. An old lady, a nerd, uh, and then lists all the people on the subway car.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, it's funny. I was going to mention because we've, this is, we're getting into wild tangents here, but. Um, uh, That's okay. I don't, have, so, it,
1: this is, th- my, my contribution to this episode is going to be pretty short. So it's okay.
0: So, uh, we can actually post the link to the stream we were playing on Sunday. We were playing this mini campaign that I've been running. Uh, again, it went really well. Um, I managed to get the players to all chant and it was great. Um, anyways, uh, but McGill's character, uh, Knox, the a bear like barbarian who was raised by bears. Who's an orc. Um, the way you play him reminds me, I've mentioned this, is it reminds me of the old Tor Johnson comics, uh yeah. which are these old like imaginary black and white comics of the life of the fifties giant actor wrestler Tor Johnson, known from Plan Nine from Outer Space and other Ed Wood films. Um and and so they all just sort of depict Tor as this gentle giant going through his life. Um, but one of them is actually Tor has a nightmare, and it's like a, a a being John Malkovich kind of kind of thing where he he looks around and everybody else is Tor, and everybody is saying <laughs> that they are Tor, and he's getting increasingly freaked out because he is Tor, and there's not more than one Tor. But that one ends with him like. He wakes up with a start in bed, and he it. The narration says like, uh, "confused and frustrated." Tor calls his f- friend and screen screen actor associate Bella Lagosi for help, and the last frame is just like Bella Lagosi in pajamas and a nightcap in bed answering the phone with a look of utter confusion on his face, saying, "How many Tor?" <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, also Tor johnson i just wanted uh, I, to oh sorry
1: i was gonna say one of my favorite Tor johnson things is at the end of the tim burton film edward which is probably my favorite tim burton movie oh yeah, there's that sure. great that great caption that says Tor johnson finally achieved fame as a best-selling halloween mask
0: and he's great he was a great comic too um I also wanted to shout out, um, while we're talking about weird uh, alternate role-playing games, there is actually a fiasco playset that I wanted to give a shout-out to uh, called All the Damn Time. Are you familiar with this one?
1: All the Damn Time? I don't think so, no.
0: It's really good. Uh, So... Sam Howard is a time traveler in a bad way. An incident with the quantum flux conductor at work has pushed Sam out of time. Now he's slipping through space-time, drawn almost magnetically to key moments in his past. He can only vaguely control it, and it seems, once he comes into contact with himself in the past, his past cells get unstuck in time too. The trick is that Sam can only time travel to places and times with which he has personal familiarity. His quantum echo, or something, reverberates through space-time. If Sam goes somewhere through regular travel in regular time he can revisit it through time travel so sam of the future has the most freedom to move around and knows everything sam of the past knows but is at the mercy of sam of the past to shape his memories and history time travel it turns out is a real son of a bitch so that's a fiasco that play set where everybody uh... is playing different versions of the same guy throughout time
1: it's like Fiasco meets uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five.
0: Basically, yeah.
1: Love it. That's a good one.
0: So yeah, all sorts of wacky RPG stuff just uh, from those two examples right there. Um, But yeah, I think uh, unless there's anything else, I think we're about ready to get into the episode. Uh, episode sure. 59... I got Operation Golden Ivy, uh, and you have Live from Eberron: The Eberlogue, which I, I thought that was pretty clever.
1: Oh, I well, thank you. Uh, do you? Who wants to start? Do we want to start with like an actual description of an adventure, or do you want to hear what I had planned to wrap up the Eberron campaign?
0: Well, so I, I admitted to you before the episode that I completely forgot that we were doing the eblog this episode, so I don't have a lot of ideas, like I came to the table with all these great ideas for the, the Minds of Metal and Wheels one, but this one I haven't thought so much about. Um, so I'd be, I'd be happy to start off with my adventure and, uh, you know, give us a bit more time before we get to that eblog. Um, Go for it. Okay. So I had sort of set this up last time. Um, Operation Golden Ivy. It is now known that uh, there is an individual, the individual leading the Nightside Eclipse in Kanya presently is, or, or presently in the storyline of Alsace's is is uh, known as the Prairie Hague. And you guessed correctly through a bit of uh bit of a mistake but but you you had made you had connected the dots it was correctly by accident last campaign The characters encountered Carmen the Immortal in hell. They chased her out. They captured her. They turned her over to Nervosa the Field Hag for critical information. Later, it was revealed that Nervosa betrayed them and, uh, you know, resurrected Carmen the Immortal to be part of her hag coven, along with a legendary figure known as Silaeth the War Witch. Now, it is revealed that Carmen the Immortal is now Carmen the Prairie Hag, operating on behalf of the Nightside Eclipse as the leader of their infiltrators in Kania. Um, I was actually looking through my notes and there were some bits that I had missed in previous episodes that I had actually sort of like hinted towards the existence of this prairie hag. Um, specifically, there was that book thief that they encountered the episode before last who I described, He he was sort of like a boss fight that I designed as kind of being like reptile um I brought that up because he had the swarm insect swarm ability and he had acid spit and stuff. Um but he actually told them like he was the first mer- person to mention the the prairie hag I think. Actually was he specifically said like when using those abilities like he had learned them from the prairie hag which I'd forgotten. Um but the point is that now the players are finally on the trail of the prairie hag they're trying to hunt her down uh once again uh mephisto is sending them out into the canyon waste with the aid of an imp uh guide so he probably told them it's haunted and don't steal even though <laughs> probably <laughs> not relevant this time um they were also given uh just a free scroll of chromatic orb because why not just have a little ball of elemental damage to throw out um, and basically they managed to figure out that Carmen was located, her hideout was basically in an old insomnium mine that had gone quiet. And so they travel the canyon wastes to go confront, uh, Carmen, the prairie hag. Um, and when they get to the mine, what is guarding them outside of the mine, but cannabis corpses they're back is oh, no. the second campaign they brought back the cannabis corpse cannabis corpse in hell um there are a bunch of pot shots which are the sort of ranged attack uh cannabis corpses that shoot like seeds at people um there's also a couple of scarecrow guards out front of the mine so just a little sort of like uh Oh, uh cannabis corpses and scarecrows just kind of like I guess an earthy encounter. you could say, uh whatever the case, they run into these sort of like these sentries outside the mine, and then it's like, all right, we're gonna go in and see what they're hiding in here. um in the upper levels of the mine, there were actually uh three displacer beasts were uh, sort of guarding the upper levels in case anyone wandered into the mines uh, because the creatures would be there. But until anybody like delved deeper, there would be no realization that there was any, uh, you know, operation going on in the mines. Um, That's awesome.
1: I'm about to run an adventure uh, with my play group where they encounter some displacer beasts for the first time. It's going to be a bit of a challenge, but uh, I've always liked the Displacer Beast as a and d foe. I think they're real cool.
0: Yeah, I think on when we had talked about favorite monsters, you had mentored, mentioned Displacer Beast. Yeah. Um, I think they've, gotten,
1: they've gotten tough, man. I, I looked up the stats for 5th edition, and uh, those saves, the the way that they get a saving throw against attacks and uh and even if they fail to save they only take half damage and if they succeed it just glances off them that's badass
0: there's also a pretty phenomenal item that uh the cloak of displacement which a character in coyotes ages has right now and what that does is uh, it's a cloak made from the hide of a displacer beast. And you can see like the sort of ten- tentacle parts like hanging off of it. But um, its effect is that basically um, when, you- when you're not taking damage, you have like a blur effect on you that um, you- enemies have disadvantage to hit you. And then it's not until you take damage that that wears off for a round. And then it takes like a round of not taking damage to activate again.
1: So Too it's sort of like, cool, man. It's Too sort cool. of like a,
0: a temporary, uh, shield, um, temporary shield generator of sorts. Uh, so yeah. And then I guess another thing, like I was sort of, uh, struggling to describe what the theme of the pot of, of the cannabis Corp scarecrow guard, encounter was but really it's like i was going for a specific sort of hag uh flavor here so having displacer beasts like having sort of fey wild beasts as the uh guards was one thing and then also having like cannabis corpses and scarecrows that's also sort of like keeping the sort of like fey origins of the hag mm, um
1: hag flavor
0: yeah and then um But then the actual sort of hideout, the the real guards in the depths of the mines, um, what I deployed was 13 elves, which were all basically rebels from uh, Nestle's homeworld of Thress, which is sort of like dominated by elves in league with uh, Mephisto. Um, There is this idea basically that then elves from her realm under the yoke of Mephisto might like rebel. And so, uh, Carmen has basically, um, like you, it has, has employed a group of rebels from Thress, uh, elven archers to be the sort of like main guards around her hideout. Um, and this man It's funny because the players, the party had generally for a while now been like quite successful in dealing with their enemies. Like they hadn't had a lot of really dire encounters unfold. Um, But this encounter, this operation kind of broke bad for them because uh, what happened was, so so there was the upper levels of the mine and they could have like gone through the mine and sort of like gone down the stairways and whatnot, but there were other sort of like passages and tunnels. And there was basically like a secret cavern tunnel access to the mine, um, where they could like infiltrate the lower area where Carmen had sort of like a tent in the lower mine. And they could basically go directly into like the side of the wall of that lower area of the mine. But once they got down there, um they were just like these elves just completely they ended up in a fight with like 13 elven archers at once and they just found like they were completely like pincushioned. like they came out of the wall and they were like alright let's fuck these guys up and then these archers just like filled them with arrows and they were like oh my god like they, it was <laughs> such a shock for them because they hadn't walked into a situation that went so badly for them like that in a long time and it was just the situation of like alright let's, let's sneak in the mines and they did sneak into the mines but then as soon as they revealed themselves they're like oh my god there's a bunch of archers down there down here and they can all hit us (laughs) whoops so it was a it was a hard-fought battle um luckily i mean sort of luckily for them not luckily on like a narrative level but luckily for them on a sort of gameplay level um, I had already planned for Carmen to flee the mines like once she got to low enough health. So the fact that like like it wasn't supposed to be the kind of fight where they, you know, beat like they fought the boss to the death or anything. It was a sort of thing where like the elves were the main challenge and then Carmen was only going to be a problem as long as they, um, you know, until they chased her off. Uh, but once she got to low enough health, she sort of, hags have an inherent kind of, uh, misty escape where they like turn invisible and, and get like, uh, disappear basically. So Carmen used that to get away. Um, however, they were able to investigate the tent in the mines that she'd been using as her hideout. And this is actually something very funny. I have like the doodle, the side on doodles of the map and everything. Um, and it's funny because I don't think that I had much of an image for this prior. So basically like the tent that I have drawn in the game, uh, in the video game, uh, Warhammer Vermintide 2, there are these perfect, like, like tanned hide, uh, tents that look all gross and they're made with bones and stuff. And they have like eyeballs in them and stuff. um, that are like that's exactly the kind of aesthetic that i was using for like the tents (laughs) and stuff in this uh in in canya in this part of the act but the thing is i think i just like like i look at the doodles and i'm like oh man that's one of those tents from vermintide but i don't think i played vermintide 2 yet so i think that that's just like oh cool i have the sort of high definition equivalent to see now in a video game but whatever the oh, case.
1: Wait, is this a case where you were looking in uh like a PC Gamer magazine at stills from Vermintide 2 or Vermintide and
0: no, Vermintide imagining what it could be? Vermintide 2 is way too new. I didn't have a PC gamer when the days of Vermintide.
1: Does PC Gamer magazine even still exist? Have I dated myself? Oh man. Uh
0: it definitely does. Um it should be said that uh like i i am always making the mistake cuz of comparing campaign and crate and crowbar but crate and crowbar is like a spin-off from the PC gamer UK podcast um so so it definitely is still there cuz they're still doing uh work for that i think um anyways so then there was also a final sort of magic item uh treasure thing to get uh from the creepy tent of Carmen the Prairie Hag in the depths of the Insomnia Mine. This it was also like looking at the doodle, it's just so solidly like a vermintide or vermintide 2 level, like just a mine that like a an abandoned mine full of monsters and bad guys that has a creepy tent in the bottom. Um but the creepy tent had a magic item, the robe of useful items. Are you familiar with the robe of useful items? I
1: certainly am, and you know what's funny is uh, the thing that I brought to the tavern does mention, it does include a robe of useful items.
0: So yeah, um, the actual... um, I think I may have even established... uh, No, it doesn't look like that's right. Never mind. Uh, I thought for a second that maybe the tent had been like uh, something that she had produced from the robe of useful items. But, um, whatever the case, I had, like, a fully loaded up, uh, robe of useful items, so it had all the different patches on it, so... For those who don't know, the robe of useful items is uh, this robe has cloth patches of various shapes and colors covering it. While wearing the robe, you can use an action to detach one of these patches, causing it to become the object or creature it represents. Once the last patch is removed, the the robe becomes an ordinary garment. The robe has two of each of the following patches. Dagger, bullseye lantern filled and lit, steel mirror, 10 foot pole, Hempen rope, 50 feet coiled, and sack. In addition, the robe has 44 other patches. The DM chooses the patches or determines them randomly, uh, and there's a d100 roll. And the options are a bag of 100 gold, a silver coffer, one foot long, six inches wide and deep worth 500 gold, an iron door up to 10 feet wide and 10 feet high barred on one side of your choice, which you can place in an opening you can reach. It conforms to fit the opening attaching and hinging itself. 10 gems worth 100 gold each, a wooden ladder 24 feet long, a riding horse with saddlebags, a pit, a cube uh, 10 foot cubed on a side, which you can place on the ground within 10 feet of you, four healing potions, a 12 foot long rowboat, a spell scroll containing one spell of first to third level, two mastiffs a uh, window two feet by four feet up to two feet deep, which you can place on a vertical surface you can reach, or a portable RAM.
1: It's like the so, cool version of the Rift's Tattooed Man.
0: And I'll tell you something uh, funny as well is, um, I believe uh, presently, yeah, yeah. So right now I'm I'm looking at the present MPOC Armory, And uh, the Robe of Useful Items, as appears in this operation, is actually in the armory right now. Um, And I can tell you what patches still are on it. Uh, So the Robe of Useful Items is currently in the Pandemonic Garblin Archives armory. And it still has the 10-foot pole, uh, the sack, the ladder, the horse, the door, the window, the pit, the rowboat, the ram, and the lantern nice so still pretty useful but yeah that's uh that carmen got away but uh they managed to crack down on her hideout and uh they're hot on the trail they've got her on the run
1: and they got a sweet new magic item
0: yeah although who knows how much they used it before they put it in the armory
1: doesn't seem like a lot
0: Yeah, they definitely got the daggers and the gold out of it. I think actually, now that I think of it, I feel like at some point they end up using the robe, the daggers in the robe to arm some unarmed people that they run into. And so that certainly comes in handy. That's Um, smart. Yeah.
1: I think my favorite, like, available patch on A Robe of Useful Items, though, is the door. I think that door feature is really neat.
0: yeah. But yeah, that was Operation Golden Ivy.
1: Nice. Golden Ivy and cannabis corpses.
0: True. And Scarecrows. And Displacer scarecrow, yeah, You these... know, the, the,
1: the Scarecrows are kind of close to Golden Ivy. They're made of straw. Kind of. The, there's a connection there. It's plant-themed. I
0: mean, we're always reaching for these connections. Des-
1: uh, desperately trying to find a connection whenever possible. I blame so, operation Iceworm.
0: <laughs> it's amazing we got into the second campaign without this happening. Actually, this reminds me I wanted to mention on the podcast, uh the um local uh police in Ottawa, they uh, announced their uh they there was a news article announced they were restarting operation Noisemaker and I was like, ha, ha operation. I like that.
1: Yeah, the the OPP tend to have operation names like that. I can't remember. Oh, I can remember it. Uh, right before and surrounding cannabis legalization, they were cracking down on like gray market cannabis dispensaries in Toronto uh, with something called Operation Claudia.
0: Oh, that's, that's real mysterious. Yeah. Operation Noisemaker was about... Um... Stopping, like, illegal street races and stuff. Which apparently is a big problem in Ottawa.
1: (laughs) Well, those are pretty noisy.
0: Yeah, that's the thing.
1: Except Operation Noisemaker should be like Operation Noise Disruptor. Operation Silencer. I was just
0: about to say Operation Silencer. Yeah. But then they'd know. Then the street racers (laughs) would be like, it's Operation Silencer. We got to watch out.
1: Operation Noisemaker, sweet, let's get yeah, in on let's it.
0: Let's go let's go party. <laughs> I love the I like the idea of the police having to crack down on street racers it feels like such a cyberpunk thing. It
1: really does. Once you get
0: motorcycle gangs.
1: Oh hey, uh it's not cyberpunk, but uh I was reminded of this recently. Uh hang on, hang on. I got I got the exact date right here. Because Oh, um, is it my...
0: Goblinization Day? It is! It Everybody is go- sent me posts about Goblinization Day, let me tell you.
1: That's right, it was uh, last Friday, it was April 30th, was Goblinization Day from Shadowrun.
0: The day when humans suddenly turned into orcs and trolls.
1: And all I could think, Tom, was maybe we don't know it yet, but a side effect of the COVID vaccine is we turn into orcs and trolls. And let me tell you, I'm okay with it.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, I um definitely in, in one of the Wikipedia pages somebody posted about the uh, goblinization day. There's a reference to the coffee famine riots of 2021. And that feels like so... So real to like a pandemic thing that would happen.
1: Right. Well, yeah, last year we had, uh, I mean, we didn't have riots over them, but there was a shortage of flour, shortage of yeast, shortage of mason jars. I think there's still a shortage of mason jars.
0: We're just barely so. coming out of the shortage of uh, graphics cards.
1: Well, uh, that one, though, you can kind of blame on the manufacturers. at least. <laughs> But uh, yeah, you can, and and maybe you can also blame it a bit on uh, cryptocurrency.
0: Well, I don't know. It's, it's you know, it's funny. I saw um,
1: coffee famine though. That would be. I might riot over a coffee famine.
0: I saw a Wikipedia. I was looking at a Wikipedia article about um, plastic, about the development of plastics and stuff, and there was somebody had like included an edit about how like uh plastic usage had been devastated by or like the plastic industry had been devastated by the pandemic and i and it said like blah 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 this had happened this had happened and i'm like i don't think that this is because of the pandemic i think it's because we're all kind of realizing that plastic is a bit of a problem
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) i've I've seen so many news articles where it's like you know babies born with plastic in their blood already it's maybe maybe it's not the pandemic guys
0: it's just like the edit has specifically said like basically the plastic industry has been totally disrupted by the pandemic and i'm like i think actually people are moving away from plastic for other reasons
1: no yeah. tom it's it's the millennials fault millennials are killing the plastic industry
0: are too busy eating ass to read papers and buy magazines on plastic.
1: I like that you went with ass instead of avocado toast, but
0: sure. That's the new thing. Millennials eat ass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have you not heard this? <laughs> I mean, wait, okay. Literally, not figuratively.
0: Literally, yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's a super... And it, it's so funny because it's it's become like of like like it is become the sort of thing that like like it's just like I get the joke now. Like like when people say it, it's like, oh, yeah, because millennials eat ass. Like there was uh, on the podcast Doughboys. They were talking about how the host Nick Weiger has a freakishly long tongue. And the other host said, you millennials, watch out. That thing will be coming out your mouth. And <laughs> like the other host basically had to explain that joke to the guests that were on the show. But I immediately knew what was going on. <laughs>
1: god i i i don't know even what to say about that one
0: i think it's, uh so man. so what
1: are we are, are we seriously positing that previous generations didn't do that
0: well this is the thing uh i was literally just about to mention that it came up in the the shadow run podcast neo scum where i think it was like it might have been the GM. It was it was someone was like announced to the group that they had to inform their parents that millennials eat ass. And then uh, one of the players was like, hey, man, they probably like the greatest generation was probably right there with us. We probably just just seen a downturn since the trenches. <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, I agree with that. Absolutely. It's got to be the case
0: it's uh it's it's the human cycle because of these pandemics you know we we're just we're just realizing that we live too close to the edge we're gonna get another hundred years of you know uh puritan mouths
1: (laughs) yeah watch out the ass famine is impending (laughs) get ready for the riots
0: this is this is too blue for comparing campaign but we'll keep is it it? (laughs) is it i I don't know (laughs) We have had (laughs) we've had all sorts of stuff on here. I feel Um, like
1: I feel like we've already earned our explicit rating. We might as well might as well go for it.
0: And hey, I'm 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 telling you, it's 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 known in the air. You don't like, you know. I didn't write these
1: articles. I I just laugh at them.
0: Yeah. Um. So live from Everon. Live from
1: Everon. Um, so I didn't, I mentioned that I knew how I wanted the rest of this campaign to go, but I didn't have like a, uh, session by session outline laid out. I just had sort of the broad strokes and what I wanted the big epic finale to be. So, uh, I figure I'll go through that. It's probably not going to take that long. And then, uh, I can talk a little bit about, the next campaign that I'm going to be discussing because uh, I've got I've got one in the pipeline here. And uh, and then we can go to the tavern and I, I got a couple of things for the tavern as well. So for the rest of the Eberron campaign, it it left off with a. Uh, with the players sort of wandering through the Mornlands with a a small zombie army following behind them. And first thing was I was planning on running at least like three more adventures in the Mornlands. I probably, had I had the time, I probably would have done way more because I just thought that the moorland stuff was so much fun. I mean, even you had an, a big reaction to it, uh, talking about just like, you know, it's, it was a, a real change of pace. Uh, there was a, a real strange kind of, uh, kind of vibe to it could get psychedelic and throw in all sorts of wacky magic things. So, I so and planning and how, on.
0: how soon is the black pits metal festival?
1: I. Uh, I think in game it was about a week, so basically my plan was to run, basically to have each adventure be one day leading up to the festival. Right. So I'd it's probably do about like six more adventures and then the festival.
0: It's just funny because, like, I have such a strong urge with my take on it to just be like, yeah, and then they get lost in the Moorlands and they stay there. There's like a time jump and they've been there for like 10 years. They've been living in the Moorlands with like an empire of zombies and uh, they just come out like extra metal. They basically come out like ghost. They've been living in that ghost world for so long. Everything's just like Scooby-Doo music and, and monsters.
1: That'd be great. And, and yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of it at the time, but it would have been really fun to do just like a whole mess, of, you know, another dozen sessions just in the Mornlands, but time works really weird there so that when they come out the other side, they're still fine. Ooh, yeah, they're still fine. Easy yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like you can do a time jump gonna, where. The where, way I was thinking of doing it was you jump forward and they get to the Black Pits metal festival and it's like, the 10th t- the like, anniversary yeah, yeah like 10 years <laughs> past basically
1: yeah you could do it that way or you could do it the other way where 10 years passed for them but then outside the mournland only like three days have passed yeah it it all fits the Mornland itself is basically eberron's bermuda triangle i so. would
0: also say that like i think inevitably the black pits metal festival showdown for me would come down to them bringing this like ghost band out of the Mornlands and basically being ghost and blowing everyone's minds, but then, by the way, ghost. For those who don't know, the band Ghost, they won some Grammys. Sometimes they're called Ghost BC. You got to look them up. They're the best. Um, anyways, uh, so they come out with their now, Ghost. Now I'm,
1: now I'm trying to think. Which Ghost are you talking about? Because there's more than one band called Ghost. You're well, the talking about the one that's Ghost
0: BC, the one that's like Scooby-Doo metal. The one that's like Scooby-Doo chase music, but then metal.
1: Uh, the, the guy who's got the painted face?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Papa Emeritus yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah. Not, not the electro guy. Um, well, you
1: know that's just it, right? There are all these ghosts.
0: <laughs> well, go- Electro Guy doesn't sound like Scooby Doo. Um, no, he doesn't. But it's, yeah, you you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. Um, but I did want to also say, so that showdown it would be like Ghost versus the like rap metal new metal band that House of Pain has put up against them. Uh, and uh, that would be great. That, that'd be the showdown.
1: Well, you've you've gotten part of what my Ancient plan was. Ancient
0: mysticism versus technology.
1: You've actually gotten part of what my plan was because I was going to do some more Mournland adventures and then I was going to do some more Mask of Destiny adventures. And the Mask of Destiny adventures were going to see the, the reappearance of the cult, the House of Pain. All of it leading up to the Black Pits Metal Festival, which I was probably going to run across multiple sessions. And I I, I only have sort of the ideas that I put on paper here, uh, rather than like the logistics of how it was going to happen. But my hope was to treat the, the metal festival, the Battle of the Bands, like the musical version of the Battle of Helm's Deep, where it starts getting crazy out of control and so everybody involved has to keep like upping the ante bringing in more people uh the the sixfold survivors or the masquerade whatever they settle on when they register uh they'd have a bunch of zombies with them as uh like maybe backup dancers doing sort of a thriller thing or (laughs) just basic percussion like all clapping together uh they'd call in the ice barbarians from a few adventures back where they met them at the the funeral of their king they'd call in their favor and have the ice barbarians do like ritual chants and the the sort of joke with the house of pain that i was gonna have happened is during the players performing, the House of Pain would show up, and the only way that they could get on stage past past security is to register themselves as a competing act. And so it would become like a almost like a stage show like you'd see at a Guar concert, where the heroes are playing their music and their rivals are playing their music, and then eventually it it devolves into full-on combat in the center of the stage. Um, just, like, go really big, bring in all these outside forces and allies, uh, a good chance to bring back a lot of the NPCs that they've encountered along the way, so they can call in favors, you know, they could, uh, bring back uh, Fallsmeer the druid and maybe he could use illusory magic to do a light show for them that kind of thing have somebody ride in on rot stench the manticore
0: ooh yeah 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 um is Lastra the leader of the House of Pain yeah see okay cuz i feel like i would have a reveal that she had like a higher boss Because what I would do, I have this idea for like the twist thing in the final battle is basically the House of Pain, they have all this like like Ebron, like lightning rail style technology. And basically they come and they bring so many amplifiers that they're just drowning out everything else. And it's like, how do we <laughs> fucking beat these guys? But the way to do it is they have to get Lastra to turn on her superiors in the house of pain ah. so that she can put bugs in all the amplifiers and short them out.
1: That's good. I like that. And then she grabs the mic and starts doing some killer vocals. Yeah, I'm down with that. Uh, I
0: think Lastro is cool enough that she should turn to the good side in the end.
1: That would be it would certainly be on theme uh now that the the good guys also have a bunch of rotting corpses as their uh as their backup uh backup performers. Might as well throw in Lastra. Maybe she can wrangle them on top of that. So as should be clear by now, a big point of inspiration. Can you, you must be able to guess like what video game inspired a lot of these ideas.
0: Was it brutal legend?
1: It was totally, it was the legend that is brutal, Tom. Um, I
0: love brutal legend.
1: Yeah. I, because I didn't play Brutal Legend when it first came out. I I have such vivid memories of the lead up to the release of Brutal Legend, not just because I was anticipating it, but because you were anticipating it.
0: It was an intense time because like the day it came out, there was also the band uh, Three Inches of Blood was playing live in Ottawa, which is like an 80s throwback metal band. Um from Canada, that really kicks ass. So uh, they have a song called Destroy the Orcs. Nice. The chorus goes, kill the orcs, slay the orcs, destroy the orcs.
1: That sounds appropriate for a title like Destroy the Orcs.
0: Anyways, yeah, so I was I was having a pretty intense time.
1: You and I were in uh, film school together. And uh, one, guy who was, a...
0: one guy who was in that film school class, not the one that's probably listening to this episode, but another guy in that film school class is one of the players in my cyberpunk game.
1: And uh, the guy listening to this was in the Verdant Apocalypse campaign. It's our buddy Grant. Yeah. And you know what else is really funny? You know who else was in a different film class of mine at Carlton? but the guy I mistook for playing Grant's character, failed. Ah. It all goes back to the Carlton Film Studies program. Um, but I, all that to say, I vividly remember the lead up to the release of Brutal Legend, not just because I was anticipating it, but specifically because I feel like it was, it must have been the whole month leading up to it, but every time you and I had our like 8.30 a.m. I think it was Film 2000. I think it was the Film 2000 main course. Uh, You would come in and you'd sit with with me and Grant and you would say something along the lines of, guys, only one week until the legend. That is brutal.
0: It's funny because I've got so many memories of me saying all sorts of stuff when I come into that class, like the time I came in and said, uh, 10 gold doubloons to whoever finds the man who shot Tom Lando uh, yep. to sort of announced it to the entire class um, I uh, remember I think Grant
1: might still have the recording of you coming in and saying will you help me murder and dispose of the body of an OC transport bus driver Yeah. and then Grant says was... I am recording this <laughs>
0: there was that I remember that I don't mean more. to alarm you
1: but I am they recording can...
0: this there was the one where I came in and just like immediately put to Grant like the, the, the sort of dichotomy of pirate versus ninja and Grant just sort of gave me a like, sometimes I wonder how your mind works, Tom. <laughs> like
1: Grant slept through almost every one of those classes. Anytime it was a morning class, that guy, his narcolepsy would take over and I had to nudge him in the ribs to keep him from snoring good times i was anyway, just always all,
0: i was just always drawing little comic books in my in my notes
1: it was during those classes that uh you and i were first uh getting into red letter media
0: yeah yeah
1: seems yeah. like so long ago now those guys just red letter media just released their 100th episode of best of the worst good grief uh,
0: yeah, man. School time, school days.
1: All of that to say, uh, brutal legend. Uh, it was around the time of, well, it was it was shortly before I began the Everon campaign that I finally played it all the way through and thought it was pretty dope, and got a lot of inspiration from the idea of a fantasy world with a heavy metal rock festival in the middle of it.
0: Though I will say, um, like, because of the, you know, without going into it, but the plot line does involve some weird, like, time jumping, time travel and stuff, and there are time skips and stuff in it. Uh, So it wouldn't be totally out of place in theming with that, to have the whole Moorlands uh, time skip. It would be a lot like the time skip after Eddie and his band are, driven into the uh ice wastes yeah that's uh, true drowning doom for the first time i i will say also i had a weird experience with that game where like i played it when i started playing it when it first came out i like kept playing it so continuously without stopping or taking breaks or anything that by the time I hit that time skip. My vision was starting to blur and I was having like a weird sort of like pseudo-conscious experience of like the time jump happened and I was like, whoa, what? It's years have passed. What? And I realized it was like so late and I'd just been staring at the TV for so long. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. It's a good game. You know, I'm tempted tempted to revisit it
0: it's just it's uh you know there's so many missed opportunities that's true i've i've talked about it on the podcast before is like there's a there's a place in the overworld map that's like a a creepy old cathedral that's all overgrown and if you go close to it um swarms of rats come out and bite you but that's all that happens is it's just like a place that if you go near it you take damage and it's like man what's the deal with that like because the drowning doom has those units that spew out the rats and they bite you so like they're using that mechanic but like what was the idea there man the church of rats I want to do the church of rats level
1: where is our brutal legend 2 or brutal legend DLC man
0: oh, man I'm not putting any faith in fucking double fine at this point
1: isn't psychonauts 2 coming out this year
0: yeah man like who's who's been holding their breath for that? my God, it's been a million years, and they've made all these other games. How are you gonna expect psychonauts two to be as good as psychonauts one yeah yeah
1: not to not to go too far down this tangent, but uh what did you think of uh double fine adventure uh what was it finally called broke broken age, broken age
0: man, so like the first half was like exactly what I wanted and I was so blown away. And the second half adds like almost literally nothing to the game. Like they don't even, you don't, you They're the second half of the game, you go to the same places that you go to the first game. And so the art assets are the same and everything. And so it's like, they didn't even make a second half of the game. It sucks. It's insane.
1: Yep that's that is how i felt as well is also first half was just so great and then they do these i was so annoyed by the dumb puzzles where you gotta flip back and forth between the characters that stuff drove me crazy
0: man and the last puzzle where you have to get the band of robots to play to do the thing that one is so bad because it's like it randomly generates what the tune is you're supposed to do and to, the only way you can know the tune is by hearing the robots in their initial sequence so as soon as you start doing the puzzle if you have not kept track of what the solution is you're just randomly doing it so i spent like hours on that final puzzle it was I, I, guess, I remember me and my sister were going insane. We were like enjoying it and then we were like okay, well, let's get this over with and then it just would not end. It was madness.
1: Yeah, that's the thing is they they did deliver on their promise where they're like we're going to make uh, an are like a point and click adventure game in the old school style. Yeah, but they also brought back that annoying old school thing where there's, like, a very specific thing that you have to do, and if you don't do it, you're just stuck forever.
0: And, like, the storyline does, like, nothing. Uh, I Yeah, I, it really bothered me.
1: Anyway, uh, so the Eberron campaign was going to go on for about six more sessions, and it was going to ha- end with a big multi-session Battle of the Bands at the Black Pits Metal Festival calling in reinforcements from all over and uh bringing back a bunch of npcs the house of pain was going to come back the masks of destiny like the powers the masks of destiny i was going to have that factor in where like the mask of charms Nikto could put it on and charm the whole audience or charm the judges um, and hopefully the players would win the day they'd win the the metal festival the grand prize And the big conclusion was going to just be them being like the celebrated band of Eberron touring around now world famous, the Sixfold Masquerade Survivors, Big B's Interposing Band, whatever name they finally decided on.
0: I know how they get Lastra to turn on the House of Pain. They free her from the Enforcer Elite prison.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's the other thing. She owes uh, them one. That's that's good, and uh, that was the other thing is the, uh, in addition to the House of Pain, the Enforcer Elite were going to show up, and they were just going to be like the narcs. They were going to try and shut down the Metal Festival, and my note on that was, you know, it's, it's sort of like up to the players how to deal with that kind of thing, but if all else failed, I was just going to have the audience like turn on the narcs and be like, no, we want more, we want more, and because they were so outnumbered, they'd get just overrun by uh by people protesting them trying to shut it down
0: is that the epilogue?
1: that is the epilogue. do you want to hear uh a little bit about what the next uh the next campaign i'm going to talk about
0: is it the verse
1: it's not the verse it could be Ugh. the verse if you do you think i should do the verse next
0: No, no, it's just, uh, you've mentioned the verse, and so I keep expecting the verse, but then, uh, you were like, no, let's not do the verse, and now you're saying, let's not do the verse again? I'm fine with that.
1: Well, uh, the reason I didn't do the verse and did Eberron instead was because we had just completed Minds of Metal and Wheels, and the verse has a similar setup, where it's a group of heroes with their spaceship.
0: Right, we just Uh, done a ton of sci-fi, we talked about this.
1: Exactly, yeah, so, so, I... I'm going to keep the verse on the back burner. Uh, it's, it's a good long one, so it'll be good to bust out. Uh, the verse, according to my notes, is 22 sessions. So that's a nice long campaign. But I'm actually going to do uh, the most recent campaign that I finished. And uh, it's it is it's 24 sessions, this one. It's another fantasy D anD D one, and I was still running it at the st- when we started this podcast. Is this your it is Greyhawk. Greyhawk. Game? Greyhawk. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I will say up front, so I'm going to do the Greyhawk game, but I will say up front that this one uh, it is a complete campaign, but the intention is at some point to do a sequel to it. So you will see the sequel being set up as we reach its conclusion, but that won't be for a while because it's uh, it's two dozen adventures long. So we'll and, do uh, uh, moving you... moving from one D and D classic setting of Eberron to another D and D classic setting of Greyhawk.
0: And so, have you um, have have you uh, started the sequel?
1: I haven't started uh, running it and I have like an outline for it, but it's going to, this one's going to sort of depend on, uh, on, you know, when people are available, who's available, because since the conclusion of this one, uh, one, uh, I'll actually, I might as well just tell you the people who played. So the players in this one were my wife, Caitlin, uh, Steve, who has played in, just about all the campaigns that I've talked about. He played Nick Doe uh, in, and uh, he, yeah, he played Nick Doe in in Eberron. Uh, so uh, there's Caitlin, there's Steve, and then there are my friends uh, Cater and Cecily, who are a married couple, uh, who I met while I was working at a toy store. And they also play in the verse. But uh, since the end of part one of Greyhawk, Steve has had a second kid, and cater and Cecily had a kid, and the pandemic happened so everybody's gotten like pretty bu- pretty busy with other commitments, so I don't really know yet uh when the sequel to this one will happen
0: right that's that like considering how recently it finished, I was very curious if you'd actually started the sequel or not.
1: No, it's kinda kind of bubbling on the back burner, and we'll we'll have to see uh when people's schedules kind of settle down again and uh while we're on the topic I'll, i might as well also uh mention the i'll just tell you the characters that we're dealing with since i told you the players um so uh cater is playing a drow elf paladin named mave whose personality is very much based on daria from from the cartoon daria okay so So really, like, deadpan, almost like Aubrey Plaza-style, like, okay, kind of, you know, sardonic. Um, I have mentioned Cecily's character before. Uh, Cecily is playing a kender whose full name is Pistachio, but who calls herself Stash. And the gimmick with Stash, she's a druid, and uh, the gimmick with her is that she has a squirrel familiar... But right. due to a magic accident, sometimes their minds switch bodies, which leads to a lot of hilarity. Cater uh, uh Steve is playing a dwarf ranger named Eric. Um, not a lot, to, like he, it, his his whole thing is he just wants to be a hero of legend. He idolizes, you know, the heroes of legend and he wants to be one of them. And he fights with a pair of, like, small hand war hammers.
0: And, sorry, what race and class is that?
1: Uh, He is a dwarf ranger.
0: Right, got it. So
1: so there's a a drow paladin, a kender druid, a dwarf ranger, and then Caitlin played a human barbarian, this giant woman, uh, whose name is Hulka Mania.
0: (laughs) Hulka (laughs) Mania. and Running her entire up in here
1: her entire MO is that she just loves to party. She's always looking for a party. And uh I will say that spoilers for part 2 of this campaign, I I had not yet incorporated it, but uh I want an eventual rival of Hulkamanias to be another barbarian named Randy the Savage.
0: Of course.
1: <laughs> Oh, hulka Oh, you done me wrong, sister.
0: Yeah, so a Slim Jim. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the cream always rises to the top. Oh, my so uh, yeah. Starting next, uh, starting next episode, I'll be talking about this one. It's just called Greyhawk. For some reason, these D and D ones—they didn't give fancy names. they just called them Everon and Greyhawk.
0: Uh, okay. Is yeah. there any 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 uh, boilerplate for the storyline here, or the? Uh,
1: I guess the the short version is that uh, I I based the campaign off of an old AD&D campaign module called The Fate of Istus, and the idea behind right. the Fate you of talked Istis, about this. Yeah, the Fate of Istus is actually a really neat module because it was designed to help uh, players transition their first edition characters to advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And so, uh, Maeve was, was a paladin of Vistas, And so I, I sort of based a big part of the campaign off of this idea that there was a war going on, uh, between deities, between the goddess of fate and, uh, yuz the evil who is trying to come back to the material plane and the goddess of fate was trying to line up events so that she could stop yuz's return but in a way that of course as fate would suggest makes it like doesn't make it apparent like she is behind it it more seems like strange you know strange things fall into place to prevent yuz's return
0: With the help of the adventurers, I assume. That's right,
1: that's right. Well, uh, something in the Fate of Istis uh, module is the idea that the adventurers are like pawns in a game of the gods, and so that's where our adventures, uh, adventurers kind of fall into it. Being influenced by deities, good and evil.
0: Call it a Greyhawk Godblock.
1: Greyhawk Godblock? Let's go with that.
0: Tavern time?
1: Yeah. been let's to, the go to the tavern in a little tavern. Little while.
0: Let's go to the yeah, tavern. i had a lot of time fun to stuff. Hit the tavern. Uh, got some fun stuff for got, the tavern. I got something that reminds me because uh, you were doing the thing about how to run a barony, and it got me thinking about a similar system that existed in Vampire before for Vampire Havens, which is a place that your vampire hangs out. You want me to start? Yeah. Alright, a haven is a place where a vampire sleeps, protected from the sun during the deadly daylight hours. Legends tell of vampires in dark, twisted citadels on high mountain peaks, complete with labyrinthine catacombs, but the reality is far less grandiose. In truth, a haven can be as simple as a sewer or an abandoned warehouse, or a crate in a forgotten storage closet, as long as it is undisturbed between dawn and dusk. All havens are not created equal. A warehouse might have plenty of space and proximity to a significant amount of prey, but it might not be secure against unwanted visitors. An abandoned subway car in a long-forgotten tunnel has space and adequate security, but it might be so far out of the way that finding prey is difficult. Great time and effort is spent finding suitable havens, and their value is represented by three factors— location, size, and security. Players who choose this merit— must also choose how to allocate these three factors when spending points. For instance, two points may be spent on haven location, with a third spent on haven security. A good haven location makes it easier for a vampire to feed, situated near a meeting place for large numbers of humans. A haven with many dots in this category might be close to several nightclubs or bars that do considerable nighttime business, while one with few dots might simply be close to a bus or train station that brings travelers on a regular basis. Each dot of Haven location grants a plus one die bonus on hunting checks for the character who controls it and any who they allow in. Havens without any dots in location are sufficiently secluded so as not to provide any bonus. Size is important to characters who need a place to safely store their processions and valuables. A haven with no dots in haven size is just large enough for its owner and perhaps a single companion with minimal if any storage capacity. The aforementioned crate in the forgotten storage closet or cramped apartment. By spending points to increase a haven's size, a player allows for accoutrements and personal effects. Larger havens can be anything from mansions to mountain hideways to vast subterranean catacombs. Note, however, that havens of considerable size are not necessarily easy to maintain. Uh, And there's an example here. So a one-dot haven in size could be a small apartment or underground chamber with one to two rooms. Uh, Two dots is a large apartment or small family home with three to four rooms. Then we have a warehouse, church, or large home with five to eight rooms or a large enclosure um, or Uh, four dots is an abandoned mansion or network of subway tunnels equivalent of nine to 15 rooms or chambers and at the highest level we have a sprawling estate or vast network of tunnels countless rooms or chambers of course haven location and haven size do not prevent rival vampires from attempting to find and steal choice uh havens nor do they prevent intrusion by mortals, such as police, criminal organizations, or social workers. It's a weird note at the end, social workers. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they gotta check in on the vampires. Um, players of characters who wish to ensure privacy and safety must choose to spend points on Haven security, thus making it difficult for others to gain entrance. Havens with no dots in Haven security can be found by those intent enough to look and offer little protection once they have been breached. Each dot of Haven security subtracts one die from efforts to intrude into the Haven by anyone a character doesn't specifically allow in. This increased difficulty may be because the entrance is so difficult to locate, i.e. behind a bookcase or under a carpet, or simply difficult to penetrate, i.e. behind a vault door. Also, each dot of Haven security offers a plus one bonus on initiative for those inside against anyone attempting to gain entrance, such as good... uh, created by things such as good sight lines or video surveillance. Um, play- characters whose players spend no points at all on haven might have their own small, humble havens, or perhaps they share the haven of a sire or prince. In any event, they simply do not gain the mechanical benefits of those who have spent merit points improving the quality of their homes. Um, each aspect of the Haven merit has a limit of five. In other words, Haven location, Haven size and Haven security may not rise above five to a maximum of 15 points spent on the merit. Um, there are also special rules for having a shared Haven. Uh, for example, like if you're sharing a Haven, uh, with your party and then there's also additional rules, like you can have a Haven of your own, but then also a Haven, Uh, that you share with your party, and you can have different points spent on them. Neat. So that is uh, the system for how vampires uh, figure out where they live in Vampire.
1: I like that. I like that they're... I mean, I think I said this about uh, running a barony as well, but I really like these rule sets that are basically... It's like in a video game where you get to upgrade your base, right there there, yeah. there are different ways where you can upgrade your your the place where you spend your downtime between missions
0: there is a an interesting note here shared havens dots can be lost uh members of the party or associates might be abused or mistreated ending relationships Group members might perform actions that cast themselves in the group in a bad light. Money might be spent or lost. If any group member does something to diminish the haven, its dots decrease for all group members. That's the weakness of sharing dots in this merit. The chain is only as strong as its weakest link. The storyteller dictates when a character's actions or events in a story compromise shared haven dots. That's actually something that uh, I probably would have run into in the vampire game I played that was set in Las Vegas um, hmm. because there was a situation where like I had my Haven, but then there was also a place that we would hang out, but we were always causing so much trouble that people were always trying to hunt us down. seems inevitable that somebody would have burned our Haven down.
1: Best yeah. You need, you need your backup Haven.
0: My one of, so I've talked about this before, but my character in that game was basically like a vampire, who had like overpowering vampire anxiety? Like he was he was very much a face. Um, he had good resources. He had been like a an opiate addicted writer in life. He was basically William S. Burroughs, but what if he didn't die? He became <laughs> a vampire and was living in uh, a retirement community in Las Vegas. And um then one of the things, one one of his things that was a problem for him, although like, so I had, I had put points, it talks about putting points in different merits and how Haven is a merit. And I had put points in the resources merit so that he basically just had like a big stash of money from when he was alive. And one recurring thing, like I've talked about how we got into the situation where the gargoyle attacked us and the one guy fought the gargoyle while I just took pictures with my cell phone the whole time, like, <laughs> terrified, uh, hiding in a ditch. Um, similarly, oftentimes, uh, so basically my guy was useless in combat. Like as soon as there was a real threat in combat, my guy would enter his fear frenzy as I had spoken about before and uh then he would become like he just have an anxiety attack and wouldn't be able to fight and uh so uh right so um then there would often be situations where we just sort of like we would get away from an encounter or situation that was so jarring or shocking like you know like after um after my guy gets back home, back to his haven after the gargoyle attack, for example, he's just like kind of like numbed and shocked. And so what I constantly had him doing was basically he would fill a bathtub and then just lie in the bath with all his clothes on. Um, Just like, because he's a vampire, he doesn't need to breathe. he just do a little relaxing uh, bath time. But um, the recurring element was that if he did that and he wasn't like properly lucid enough, he would come out of the bath and realize that his cell phone had been in his pocket. No, He'd always have to buy a new phone.
1: (laughs) Not again. (laughs) I like that. That's, That's funny.
0: It's funny too, because like, he he caused all the problems for the group i feel like he his his partner was like a badass samurai girl and she had like um you know she had stuff going on like she had enemies and whatnot but this guy max he was just constantly causing problems on such a scale for like that whole idea of the vampire masquerade of night like not revealing vampiric activity he was like such a liability for that that like you know the fact that he was constantly taking these anxiety baths was just really his fault and uh he was sort of dodging the repercussions uh just being like "Ah, i can't deal with this it's like well don't stop doing this
1: (laughs) just stop man you are the architect of your own anxiety
0: so what do you got?
1: Uh first I just want to shout out a piece of software I know I I offered to share it with you but you weren't all that interested uh but I purchased I mean not Dungeon at the time
0: Draft. but I might get into it at some point.
1: So Dungeon Draft is a piece of software specifically for creating RPG maps. Um you, My understanding is that you can use it for just about any RPG. There's some assets for like cyberpunk and sci-fi, but primarily for like D&D fantasy RPGs. And it's really easy to use. Uh, I'm super impressed with just how well it's put together and how intuitive it is to start making stuff. What inspired me to get it, I'd heard some of my friends have recommended it to me before, but... uh, it wasn't until I decided that I wanted to run a Dungeon Magazine adventure called As Flags' Unintentional Emporium for uh, the gaming group uh, who I'm running D and D games for, and uh, As Flags' Unintentional Emporium is this like wizard tower adventure where they they have to they go into a wizard tower that has seemingly been abandoned by its wizard and find that. All of the magical creatures and uh, like his zombie servants and, you know, his animated garden tools and everything, everything that he has left behind uh, in his absence has kind of gone rogue and taken over the tower. So they have to contend with the unintentional emporium of this missing wizard. And uh, it's from Dungeon Magazine. And so the map is just this really bare bones, black and white map that's very uninspired and uh i I was like i want like a a color map with some detail so i got dungeon draft and remade the map and it looks great now i'm really happy with it so big uh uh,
0: include that in the uh show notes
1: i will i definitely will so like big ups to uh, dungeon draft i'm really impressed with it so far and i'm totally going to be making uh, all sorts of new maps using it. It's really easy and really fun to use It has like features so that you know, you can have multi-level maps. So like the wizard tower there's just a function where you can click up or down on the levels and like move between the different level maps that you create really neat and uh, I'm I'm using the map for roll 20. So I just have outputted it as a JPEG but uh there is a way to do it. I don't know uh how it's integrated, but when you look at the map in Dungeon Draft, like the water on the lakes for example, ripples, there's like some degree of animation that goes into it.
0: So the the, the thing that I'm most interested in with um Roll20 is sizing that map to the grid uh so that the 5 foot squares work out the same way, you know?
1: yeah well it's uh the original map that I based it on it's uh ten foot squares so that's okay. how i that's how I sized it in rule twenty. It worked pretty well I'm really happy I haven't run the adventure yet, but uh I'm really happy with how it it all came together and how it seems to work on rule twenty
0: Cause that's the issue that I've had before with like uh Don John for example uh Donjon has a um random dungeon generator that's very robust but the issue is that um it creates a very small grid map for you and i don't know really like when i bring that image over to roll 20 i don't really know the math on how to make that grid suddenly fit to the size of the roll 20 grid
1: well another upshot uh with dungeon draft is that you can just turn off the grid entirely if you want So you could just, you could exclusively use the Roll20 grid. Um, So yeah, Dungeon Draft. Big recommendation. Really cool. Check it out for all your map making needs. It definitely made this, the next adventure I'm running, the map is going to look so much cooler. I can't wait to have my players run their tokens through this gauntlet of weird magical beasties. And Speaking of those players, the main thing that I wanted to bring to the tavern is a module that uh, That I ran for them not that long ago. It's a it's a pretty short one. I got it off of Drive-Thru RPG, and It's a short adventure called Bad Apples by Dan Coleman And I can tell you right now this one is going directly into my stable of like go-to adventures file this alongside the spottle parlor and the elf in the house and uh the plot is really simple there's a harvest festival coming up but the uh the druid who brews the cider for the festival nobody's seen him in weeks and the cider is like it's it's one of the the key pieces of the festival is tapping the cider kegs and then everybody in the town drinks some of the cider. And this, this druid, uh, his name is Newton tell. He's the one who's been providing cider to this festival for years and years. And so his absence is uh, very concerning indeed. And the players are hired or instructed to go and go to Newton tells orchard and cider mill to procure the cider for the festival. And in the, uh, in the game that I'm running, the, uh, the players, this takes place in that barony that they are now in charge of. So they're just in charge of the festival. So they just got to go and get the cider for the festival, man. Uh, you don't have a choice. The festival's happening and it's their responsibility. What I love about this adventure though, is that it is it reminds me of like an episode of ghostbusters. Uh-huh. This has some real ghostbusters vibes to it. So first they show what up
0: What about the, that Ghostbusters 2000?
1: Ghostbusters 2000.
0: Man, did you never watch the like newer Ghostbusters cartoon? Oh, what,
1: you mean Extreme Ghostbusters? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I
0: meant. That's what I meant. <laughs> that that one rules.
1: Yeah. I mean, similar vibes, and you'll see why. Uh, So this is a location-based adventure. Uh, It all takes place at the Cider Mill and Orchard. Uh, There are five buildings that make up the Cider Mill, and then there are fields surrounding them uh, filled with apple trees. The players show up, and uh, the first thing they have to do is they got to cross this bridge to get to the orchard. but. When they arrive, they notice that something is amiss with the orchard. Something has gone wrong. Like a dark cloud is hanging over the orchard. There are crows flying through the air. The vibe is all... The atmosphere is all wrong. Uh, And as they're going across the bridge, uh, depending on how their perception checks go, they might notice that underneath the bridge are a few bodies of dead bandits floating down there. And something has happened to them. They were killed... By some strange means, because they have weird claw marks and tiny bite marks all over their bodies. The players arrive on the other side of the bridge and uh, are instantly attacked by all the scarecrows that are lined up along the fence that Ah. looked at first like Harvest Festival decorations. The scarecrows have come to life. Um,
0: Scarecrow guards for the second time this episode.
1: That's true. And there are more guards as well, because if the players explore the the rows of apple trees, suddenly some of the trees animate to life and attack them as well. Um, I guess I, for the sake of people listening, I shouldn't spoil every surprise uh, that this module has in store. But I can tell you this much uh, without, you know, really ruining anything. But the the sort of the plot that the players have come upon. Uh, is that bandits showed up at the orchard and thought it would make a good hideout and they killed newton tell who runs the orchard but in killing newton tell they've also set off all his magical security systems like the scarecrows like the animated trees and those security systems then kill all the bandits so the players arrive basically at the scene of a massacre newton Tell is dead, but all of the assailants are also dead uh, as a result of this. And in exploring the orchard, they encounter more and more of these things. Um, One really fun feature, this this is the part that reminded me the most of Ghostbusters. There's a new monster called an Apple Blight. And the idea is that Ah. after newton Tell died, his vengeful spirit created these monsters called apple blights they look like normal apples except suddenly if you pick them up they have a weird demonic mouth with a long snaky tongue and they can bounce after you and bite you and that to me like that felt like a ghostbusters monster right there you know an apple with are fangs. you familiar
0: with the other are you familiar with the other blight monsters
1: uh not offhand
0: So actually the cannabis corpses that I use are like the lower level ones are based on blights, which uh, it sounds like this apple blight is a version of. Um, In 5e, there's certainly, there's at least twig blights and vine blights, I think. Um, But like one of those is basically the pot shot, which is a blight that like shoots uh, little projectiles. And then the vine one is like the constricting one, which I would use as Ah. the bud constrictor most likely.
1: Well, these ones are just, like, little... I, I think they only have, like, an AC of one. Yeah, they're really easy to smash, but they move... I mean,
0: blights are always very low-level, but they yeah. come in groups.
1: Yeah, they're really easy to to take out, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of them, and they, they're just really fun. They're, when I ran this adventure, my players were constantly, like, they'd pick up an apple, and then the apple would bite them. Um...
0: Oh, interesting. So I've got the Forgotten Realms uh, blight here, and we've got Needle Blight, Tree Blight, Twig Blight, and Vine Blight, but no Apple Blight.
1: Yeah, I think Apple Blight was created specifically for this module. Um, When the players investigate the main cider mill, they open the door, and this is another Ghostbusters touch, Uh, the, the ghost of the orchard owner has become a poltergeist. So they open the doors to the mill and inside are like bottles and casks and apples just swirling around in the air in a big, like invisible gale. And they have to, uh, they have to contend with this. They can easily defuse the situation by just announcing their intent where they're like, we've come to get cider for the festival. And the ghost will be like, oh, well, okay, you guys are pretty good. Let me tell you, my players did not do that. <laughs> they they wound up in a big fight with uh, with a poltergeist. Another cool detail that I love is there's one of the outbuildings of the cider mill is the Apple Store. Uh, where all the apples are kept for pressing. And in the apple store is also uh, a cask that seems to be, like, being eaten away by the liquid inside of it. And uh, the liquid looks like cider, but if the top is removed, it's an ochre jelly. And uh, oh. one of the one of the reveals of this module is, that the players can uncover going over the late orchard owner's note notebooks and things, is that he was also experimenting with alchemy and imbuing his ciders with different magical properties. So the, uh, the ochre jelly is like a failed alchemical experiment of his. And uh, yeah, the, the, my players were pretty funny about it. They inadvertently unleashed the ochre jelly and then... They just they were so like upset by this that they set the building on fire and just like shut the door and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it wasn't the the Apple Store building isn't connected to any of the other buildings uh, in the orchard, so they just like safely burned it away from everything else. They were like, let's get out of here. Um, but the final portion of uh, the adventure is the discovery that only three casks of cider have been made. And it's up to them. It's up to the players to create the rest of the cider, and so they have to do that by collecting apples from the orchard, and potentially running into you know more more monsters along the way, um, and then operating the cider press in the main mill. And in doing so, maybe they have to contend with the poltergeist again, and sort of it all wraps up with this puzzle of them having to make uh, a total number come back with a total number of 10 casks of cider
0: this is like in, a really uh, my this is like my module sugar thane sanctum where they got to go around the candy labs to make a chocolate key to open up the vault
1: yeah a similar structure to that um but i i thought this was really satisfying it's a really fun little adventure uh all location based by dan coleman drive Through rpg and uh It was kind of perfect, because I was like, oh, I need a a good adventure for a party of third-level characters. And sure enough, this is a fifth-edition adventure short for a party of third-level characters. Big recommendation.
0: Yeah, uh, I've been, uh, definitely, uh, I've sort of got my own little stash of uh, go-to 5e adventures at this point, because I've got that great carnival one. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. We've got the one we're doing now. That's basically how I've built this uh, mini campaign that we're doing. Anyway, this has been episode 59? 59. Uh, May 4th, 2021. If you want to get in touch with us, you can hit us up on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. I post uh, links to the episodes as they come up. That is a uh, comparing campaign on Facebook. If you want to see our show notes, products, pictures, videos, blah blah blah. we got them at ComparingCampaign.wordpress.com. Um that's about it for me. Uh you got anything else, McGill?
1: Get that ding. Not me. Don't steal.
0: Oh, it's haunted.